Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My book today is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think my author is going to object to that description. <laughs> the novel is George Parker Goes Global, and the author is David Metzenthan. So, David, welcome back to 3CR. Well, thank you, 3CR, David and Jan. Yes. Well, you've exploded a number of things here and taken things to the extremes. Our hero is, as the title suggests, George Parker, a genius nerd who accidentally avoids being persecuted at school. What's going on? Yeah, he's he's a very conservative guy who ends up with a half a haircut, which was well, when the hair salon caught on fire, so he was left stranded and he goes to a very tough school and he went back to school thinking he was going to be killed, but it worked in his favour. But this is but this is the odd thing. Here's the uh, sort of character that's out of the ordinary who's accepted rather than persecuted. So you, you, you've flipped things. Well, I think he's... He's totally ignored at his school because he's such a non-entity compared to all the rich kids who have private armies and private jets. So, we'll go into the school in a minute, yeah. but keep going. So, you know, he's, he likes astronomy and he's working on a simplified counting system which has run to 700 pages. So everything, he's, he's illogical, but he does love a fact. But the stereotype is that, you know, in, in a novel, is that the, the genius nerd is persecuted and overcomes mm. that and they all live happily ever after. But it's inverted in many ways because all of a sudden he's sort of uh, the flavour of the month with half a haircut. Well, he's so illogical and then he ends up with a mohawk, which he's so worried about because he doesn't want to offend the mohawks. But <laughs> every, he, he's full of terrible... He, he's so conservative, he loves to plan and chase Landon Bond, who's wealthy, says plans are only for plonkers and, and George is a complete... He plans everything, but so of course... So who do you think this would appeal to, mostly? The Anyone who likes to <laughs> hopefully laugh. If they like a fact-filled folk song, they might enjoy it. <laughs> Songs that can be enjoyed by the non-musical. <laughs> OK, so now George, and we'll get back to Chase later, but George goes to Tapley Grammar Boarding School... And I can't help but think you might be saying something here about private education because my footsteps echo along the grand corridor that takes me through the grand doors into the grand dining room. On the walls are the names of old Tapley students who have been Prime Ministers, fighter pilots, successful pirates, Australian cricket captains or just plain filthy rich. Our school motto is winners are grinners. And although I'm not sure it's a very good motto... Everyone else seems to like it. <laughs> oh, what are you saying here, David? Uh, You're not saying anything about private education, says, are you? Well, you know, one of my kids went. But at, at one point, George says to Chase, you know, it's it's um, only money. And Chase says, well, that's because your parents haven't got, got any. any. You know, like <laughs> when, they lose, when the dog loses them $50,000 in the Hudson River. and um... Yeah, but I mean... The Tapley Grammar four-star tuck shop and the foreign currency exchange or the Tapley Grammar marina and container ship wharf. Well, that's it. And they're trying to bring back live duck shooting as a school sport. But well, you know, I think it should be an Olympic those... sport, shouldn't it? <laughs> and chasing, yeah. the, chasing the, the, uh, the fox with the hounds, etc. But, I mean, excess. 
I mean, also at institutions like schools like this. And we've got a lot like that. Well, look, at, and yeah, good luck to... There's all sorts of schools in Australia, and, and that's fantastic. But the, the over-the-top thing about money was really when... Um, who's the guy who's in Pirates of the Caribbean? Um, Johnny Depp brought his dogs out on his oh. private jet and said, you can all get stuffed and bring them a dogs. And they go, <laughs> well, maybe you're not, you know. So that... Where, where I have money, where I have access to, to power. I wanted to look at a kid who goes, yeah, well, we've got a private jet. Let's go there. You know? yeah. but, he, but George goes, well, you can't take a dog on a jet. He goes, I can do what I like. Yeah. And, we've got, and they do. They yeah. do. And they they've do. got so many people like them. And they, in some ways, control the institution because mm. of the money they can throw around. Now, with so we've got George. We've got this environment he's in of excess. And we have a series of adventures here that seem to just cascade over the page. I couldn't keep up with everything that yeah, was Yeah, it, it, it really, I've decided, uh, I've always said to my wife about my books when I'm like watching the tunnel or the bridge or something, I said, this is the problem with my work, you know. Not, a, not enough plot. That's probably what's <laughs> holding me back. So this time I go, these boys are going and they're going hard and they're going a long way. And I did want to... Um, I wanted to lurch into bad acting and incredible situations, and which, you know, it's... Well, the ridiculous situations, absurd situations, and if we break this down a little, uh, which might, in fact, destroy the fun of it all, I mean, one of the first questions is, how did you invent it all? And... It didn't. It just flowed, you know. It just, <laughs> just flowed. Went from one thing to the other, well, and uh, you, but you, it's just for laughs, you know. And I've got to say, as, as terrible as it sounds, I used to say to my wife, I'd, I'd sort of go, you know, this is hilarious, and she'd go, <laughs> well, she's read it, and she goes, oh well, you know, perhaps. <laughs> um, I just, I got into it. Look, I'm a bit of a closet actor, and I, I you know, just to to let Chase and George, especially George, to go wild. Well, George is inadvertently going wild. You've got Chase Landon Bond, who sort of adopts George. Chase has got all the money in the world. Well, Chase is a golden child, and George's favourite colours are woody green and moss brown, you know. And Chase ends up with $50 million in his account because his parents are trying to uh, sort of hide money because they're... Um, they're on the run on the Riviera. Uh, they're on the run on the Riviera because he runs a um, hedge fund, yeah. <laughs> which which has no money, and that sort of goes. Well, which Chase goes. Well, look, you know, sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it goes bad, and that's how it is. You so know, then lost... we've got the sort of joining of those two uh, opposite characters. Um, but here's the go. There are there are all sorts of hidden. Well, hidden? No, they're obvious. Uh, At one point, George suggests taking the grand piano off the private jet to save fuel, uh, selling the piano, and then using the money to save orangutans in Borneo. Um, Now, it all makes sense. It all it does. If you if you read the book, it it actually makes sense. But George is coming up with these little suggestions, and and um, Chase is all of a sudden saying, "Actually, that makes sense." Oh, Chase is pretty lasso's fair. He doesn't care. Like his mother has flowers flown in all over the world every day, even when she's away for three months. So they put the flowers on hold and they sponsored like I think it was two hundred kids in one day. And but then they get rewarded for yeah, they get a trophy. Those, they get those, a trophy. Those kids, but it, it sort of points out the disparity that's going on. In the world. Well, I think at one point, uh, Georgie goes, oh, I'm just swapping one sort of wealth for the other. <laughs> uh, 
in his own way he is and uh you know, and he's you know he's always going on a rave about the uh, natural fabrics that he prefers, like the woolen uh, bathers he has, which he's still <laughs> rocking. He records. But there's a well. I was going to hesitate to use the word message, but there is a message because without revealing the end of the book, um, that subject of money and um, what one does with it and how one uses it, comes up at the end as well. Well, yeah, like George's, his parents are like, they're researching moon rocks in Switzerland in a bunker. And, you know, they, 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 they have no money. They're working, they're working for the good of society. And this is what George thinks everyone should do when Chase thinks he's a lunatic. He goes, yeah. well... But, I mean, it's in the world around us today. I mean, Facebook lost, uh, you know, billions of dollars overnight. I mean, how does one sort of mentally cope with that image. Well, there's a Jeff Bezos who, who runs oh, Amazon, Amazon is worth $200 billion. Yeah, but what's he going to do with the money? And I I'm not sure. <laughs> He's not going to give it to anyone, it appears. But he, yeah. might. he may. I don't know. He well, may. Um, Some of it. You know, Microsoft. Uh, who's the guy? Bill Gates. Bill Gates. He's done the right thing. Oh, a lot of those guys do. Give, giving it away. A lot of, you know, uh, Warren Buffett. I did see, you know, Andrew Forrest gave $100 million. Yeah. The other. That was quite generous. <laughs> so that, that sense that we've always had of accumulation is, yeah. is actually pointless. I actually uh, rang up um, FMG, which is the big uh, Andrew Forrest company, and said, oh, that was a really good thing. And they go, oh, yeah, thanks. See you later. <laughs> $100 million bucks, but good on them. Okay. Um, now, the key to relating to readers of this age group then, because it's sort of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, 10, 12. Probably, yeah, kind of like a good, you know, like there's eight-year-olds who read, you know, 500 pages of Harry Potter. So there's kids who are like eight could read this. And I also would really like, say, kids of 14 or 15 who aren't great readers to get into it because it, it, I hope it would deliver for them as well. It's easy. It's supposed to be easy to read. It is supposed to be mad, but it is the story. It's I. I just wanted like this is entertainment, man, and it's off the scale. But I, I can also imagine parents reading to their kids, enjoying this as well, because there's sort of the a, a sort of subtext going on there. Well, I've written a clause into my contract, <laughs> my massive contract, that if it's going to be a, an audio book, I want to read it. <laughs> Because I think I know how to read it. Yeah. You, you need somebody with that sense of almost the yeah. absurd. Oh, it's absurd. Don't worry, <laughs> Don't worry about that. It's beyond but, that. But in terms of relating to that audience, I think I'm just trying to recall the last book I interviewed you about. It was an older age group, to say the least. How do you then switch between readerships? Uh, the, well, the, the last book, which was called Dreaming the Enemy, which was like sort of a fact-based fictional novel on Australians in the Vietnam War. <laughs> you know, when I'd finished it, it I mean, it was gruelling. The research was gruelling, the writing was gruelling, but I was really pleased with the end result because I got it done. But, you know, like a couple of weeks later, you know, like I'm over that, I'm looking for other things. And when, when, when a few ideas come together, I go, oh, I'm doing that. And it was a it was fun to do. I, I loved it. It was good. And you just, just took off. I mean, just that sense of finding the voice. I look at us, me, a punk rocker with glasses, Isabel as an exceedingly young nun, and Chase, a French foreign legionnaire unable to obey orders or even direct a lost tank onto the right road, or Rue, as the street is called in France. 
This is not a game, I informed Chase and Amy, in case she's listening. Getting off this ship will be a life-threatening situation. Chase is now trying on a pair of lace-up combat boots. Right you are, George. What did you say? Oh, ask Amy. I'm rather annoyed. I'm going to clean my teeth. Clara, my dental hygienist, would be appalled at my lack of flossing lately. She's unbending in her belief that rinsing is no substitute and eating an apple just leads to a false sense of security. <laughs> it's, just, it's all true. It's just, well, of course it is. But just finding that I don't know, it just kind sense of, of voice. Just rolls, you know, because that's you know, once you can see the person, and I can see him, you know, like, I hate astronomy, I hate space, I hate all that bullshit. You know, like, when you spend $500 million, oh, we found a new moon, we, we've only seen it for one second. It's just the greatest waste of money. But Georgie, Georgie loves space, and, you know, he describes himself as Iapetus, a, 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 a half-coloured moon, you know, so so that's like his haircut. But it just, it you know, like... Ideas roll and bad ideas like hit the rocks and leave you very depressed. And and Georgie just gave me everything. And I've seen golden children like Chase. I've seen families who are oh, yes. gold. I've seen them glow and I've seen them get into a Bentley, you know. Oh, yeah. So th- they exist. So mm. it was such so much fun to just go mad Take in the New Mickey York, out of Paris. A little. But also then, I mean, for people like George that going to school out there with these kids that have everything... I mean, there's an element of anxiety and all of these this other. I layer. think also for the parents, you know. <laughs> I one of one guy I was talking to at a school, my son's school. Um, Liam said, "Oh, you know that guy you're talking to," and I go, "Yeah, yeah." They're described as the Commodore family because <laughs> <laughs> everyone else has got these other motors, you know. Yeah, yeah BMWs or Bentleys. Or uh, it's a it's a kind of a strange world, but it's never been any different. So I, I love that idea of. You know. Anyway, but they the, end up. But the pressure to to perform at that level, and and the kids feel that as well. It's... Part of the reason was to write the book was to give a kid a break and go, look, <laughs> mate, this is, don't look at your phone. Don't worry about well, how have, you should be. Have Just... you got the latest phone? Have you got you know all exactly. of the accoutrements you, you're meant to have? And they're all. Sort of but you, shallow as a means. child now, you can't escape. If you're having a hard time at school when I was young, you get bullied at school. But by the time you got home, no one was coming around to your house or ringing you up. Now, there's just, whether it's constant bullying, pressure. there's just constant pressure. And I just think kids, like everyone, we all need a break, man. You know? So we all need to let loose uh, and also then tuck your pyjamas into your underpants. For a rather streamed aerodynamic that, that, look. That's essential. But the book is George Parker Goes Global. <laughs> The author is David Metzenthan, and as I said, it's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Oh, Alan and Unwin, by the way. Oh, Thank wow. you. Thanks. Well, we're Thanks doing an you. Alan and Unwin book again, too, and, and with my um, author, Kirsty Manning. Welcome back, Kirsty. Hi, great to be here. Well, uh, David was talking about a, 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 a people that are all absurd. ends, yeah. absurd. I'm going to talk about a city. It is one, two. Have you ever been to Shanghai? On one side of the river is the Bund, with wonderful Art Deco buildings, and on the other side, there's the Pink Pearl Tower and other skyscrapers that put on a light exhibition at night. And it's here that Kirsty Manning noticed something that led to the plot of her wonderful book, The Jade Lily. So, what did you find? Well, I was actually um, staying in the area of Hongku, which is across the Suchow Creek from the Bund. It's um, one of the poorer areas. It's been quite developed now. And I was walking through one of the laneways and I saw a um, 
somebody pointed out, I should say, I wouldn't have noticed it. It was very subtle. A rusted Star of David on um, on on a red door in front of one of their courtyard houses. And I was quite struck by that. And I went back to my hotel and I was with my children on holidays. And and the concierge just asked me about how my day was. And I I told him I'd just seen this Star of David. It's quite unusual to see any religious iconography in Shanghai. And he said, oh, that area that you were walking through, that was the um, Jewish ghetto in Shanghai. And I said, what what do you mean? I had no idea. no idea of that history. And he said, tomorrow, go back. Uh, there's actually a Jewish refugees museum at the end of the road and you can go and have a look. And so I went to the Jewish refugees museum and I discovered that um, 1937, 1938 through to early 1940, over 20,000 Jews went to Shanghai. Um, so why there? Because it was one of the only places you could go without a visa. I think Dominican Republic at that time was one of the others. You could go to some other countries, um, but you had to get through countries that required a visa. And um, Shanghai was this crazy international port where nobody really checked the paperwork when you got in. You needed a visa sometimes to get out of Germany or Austria, but it was all Germany at that Mm. time. Um, But they really, they were generous in their... So this led to the research that is the backbone of this plot in this book. But let's get to the people. It's the story of Romy and her family. So, you know, tell us who they are. Well, Romy, uh, when we meet her in the book, she's uh, on the cusp of teenagehood. She's 13 years old and um, she's with her parents. And the book opens with Crystal Knight and she has two older brothers and um, we all know how Crystal Night ends mm, at the Night of Broken Glass mm. in Vienna. And she is forced to flee with her family and she leaves both her brothers behind. I don't think it's a spoiler to say one brother is killed that night mm. and another brother is um, loaded away and sent to a work camp, which, mm, of course, um, they did not know. They didn't know. They were literally considered to be a kind of prison or work camp at that time. They had no idea how uh, things would pan out during the war. And she comes to Shanghai. She gets on the boat with her parents and they come um, from Italy to Shanghai. And this is a little bit from the book. What was this city, Shanghai? Papa had called it the Paris of the East, but Romy had never been to France. The grand stone buildings looked like they might be from Europe, but the glitzy billboards, they seem straight out of Hollywood. And that is that disparity about it all, isn't it? It is. I think Shanghai has been, you know, at the heart of global trade for so many centuries. Mm. It's just really that clash of cultures and... um, and it's made them very accepting. And, I mean, I described, I think, in a few of my talks when I've been doing um, touring with the book and I said, you know, it's part traditional medieval village, part Blade Runner. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's like old traditions and new. Now, Romy's, Romy's father is a doctor and he's already got connections. In fact, the first month they live in Shanghai, where is it? This is beautiful. Well, they... Um, 
they live at the Cathay Hotel, which mm. was uh, an amazing building built by Sassoon. Um, Shanghai has some of the oldest, I guess, some of the best collection of Art Deco buildings in the world, and um, it kind of showcases that building. And here, the Sassoon family, this is from your research, they really did support the Jewish immigrants. They really family. did. There were a lot of um, very wealthy Jewish merchants that had been there for a long time in Shanghai, some bad daddy Jews and some Russian and um, they were very generous to people setting up Haim, as they were called, and um, schools, education, of course, was very important, and also soup kitchens. The mm. Americans spent a lot of money supporting people who arrived, of course, with nothing, with a suitcase and the equivalent of 10 US dollars. Then, you know, the uh, Romy and her, fa- her family live in, in the French concession and it's very nice and they've got very nice neighbours, the Ho family. And it mixes Romy with um, a, a, the Chinese community. But then they've got to move. They've got to move into the ghetto. They and, do. And I was absolutely, you know, sort of the, there's 100,000 people, a Chinese, already in this area and 20,000 more refugees move in. <laughs> yeah, it was quite an extraordinary moment. Um, I think from my research, I mean, you can never verify these things, but there was a lot of um, pressure, I mm. think, on the Japanese to... Uh, I guess, execute the final solution in Shanghai. But the Japanese really pushed back against that. And um, their, I guess, compromise was to move the Jewish people into um, only the ones that arrived since um, 1937. So the stateless, the people who were classified as stateless refugees. So the people who'd come with a Russian revolution, obviously Mm. they could stay in the French concession and stay in their areas. But those that were stateless... Um, had to go into the ghetto and it was one square mile and there's all of these. Um, when I when I spoke to, I did a lot of research speaking with people who lived there, both Chinese and um, people who'd since moved on to Australia and they told me about their time in the ghetto and sharing Chinese New Year with families mm. and how they really had to really crowd in together. And of course, with the Japanese occupation the uh, and, and enforcement of all the rules, you know, you couldn't get out without a curfew. Oh, you had to be back within the curfew. You couldn't get out without a pass. And as it's sort of one character says, the same thing that happened at home is happening here. And it's that whole, the Japanese horror, the horror times, the overcrowding, the illnesses, the curfews, and then the bombings. Oh, well, of course, they had no idea um, that they were when they were fleeing Europe and the, um, I guess, the oncoming war. They mm. had no idea that they were sailing right into the middle of a, you know, an Asian war. Yeah, and you also get the two different lifestyles too. Um, Romy, Romy, when she came out on the cruise boat, had a friend called Nina, and they were great mates. But it got to a stage when Nina said, "Look, just." I don't want to see you anymore. You know, <laughs> we live a different lifestyle because Nina you know, was trading her way out of poverty, basically. Yeah, and I think um, I really wanted to. There's a, I guess, a trio of friendship between um, Lee, the mm. Chinese neighbour, and Nina and Romy, and I just really wanted to show that people get through wars in very different ways and people grieve in very different ways and people, um, you know, just surviving and hanging on. It's um, what people do. People who weren't there really sometimes can't judge what they have to do to get through. 
In the first 11 pages of The Jade Lily, this book we're talking about by the very clever Kirsty Manning, we move from Vienna, 1938, to Shanghai, 1944, and Melbourne, 2016. Mm. This is where Romy, who's now a grandmother, and her granddaughter, Alexander, have come uh, have come to. And Alexander's come home. She's, she's a high flyer in London. She's been working over in London now. And uh, why has she come home? Because this is, all, this is a nice bit. She's come home to spend time with her grandparents. Her grandparents raised her and her grandfather is dying. So she's come um, to nurse him through his last days and be with her grandmother. And she's had this breakup. And she's had a dreadful oh, breakup in yes, London. She has a broken yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now she thought. Um, so she's she's back there. She her why why did she grow up with her grandparents? She grew up with her grandparents because her um, mother and father were killed in a car accident when she was young. So and she was an only ch- only child. Um, and now her, we should mention here her grand her grandparents are both Viennese. They're they both are Caucasian. Viennese. Alexandra? She is um, Eurasian. She yes. Well, she is – her mother was Chinese. So her mother um, was an adopted, obviously, child who came out with Romy uh, from China mm. to Melbourne. But she hasn't really – I think in the way of um, – Many of those stories during the war, she hasn't had the full story of how no. how she came to be with Romy and Willem. Just right, page 57. Let's hear Kirsty Manning reading from the Jade Lily. Alexandra had asked many times where Sevilla actually came from, but Omar and Opa always deflected the question, instead telling dazzling tales of discovering star anise, ginseng and cardamom at a Chinese medicine dispensary, describing the smell of peach blossoms in spring and visits to markets where everything still wriggled, rickshaw races and beautiful ladies who wore silk dresses finer than any in Paris. China had given Omar and Opa their freedom, their vocations and the gift of a daughter. By the time Alexandra hit her teens, that was all the information they were prepared to divulge. Omar's brow would crease with pain every time Alexandra asked, so she stopped. Why keep pushing when the topic was taboo? So she'd never, she really wanted to know where her birth family linkage was but never, could never find out. One thing she did have was the jade lily pendant. Who did she get that from, or what was she her grandmother about? had gifted her a jade lily <coughs> pendant um, when she was twenty one, and she went off to Oxford to study maths, um, it, following in her mother's footsteps. Her mother was also a mathematician, but so yeah. she knew that maths, this this maths, must run in the line, and yeah. where to? Mm-hmm. Now, um, so she her next job, Alexandra, was going to be in Shanghai. So she thought, ah. It is. And I think she – I wanted to make her a commodities trader because I think half of our worldly goods pass in and out of China. And I think if you're writing about China in a contemporary timeline, it's a a really plausible career to have. Um, They're very highly educated and commodities are the backbone of that economy really. And and so she can plausibly take a job in China. But, of course, she takes the job – Looking for her Chinese um, birth family. And, of course, she has to live somewhere. And she has she meets a neighbour. She does. She moves to um, the French concession, which is where her grandparents landed originally in Shanghai. And she 
gradually in searching for her birth parents, she also uncovers the story of her adoptive grandparents, her Viennese grandparents Mm. in Shanghai. So she's unfolding two mysteries and two stories at once and retracing their footsteps, sometimes inadvertently without realising that she's doing it. That's that's the whole, what, what do you call it? Yon Fen. The, yeah, a fateful coincidence. A coincidence um, about your f- fortune, your future, the events of your life are linked to your history, bad or good. But that whole thing about bad or good also says a lot about the characters. You know, we, the, all the Japanese occupiers aren't bad. Are no, they? of course they're not. And I think um, I'm very careful in my book. It's very easy um especially in books like this, to paint people as simply all good or all bad or heroic. Um, I think people um, can be very cowardly and some people who are very ordinary can do quite extraordinary things, Um, just one or two quite brave acts of courage. Or, um, And I think when you look at um, when I was speaking to people who had been refugees and had um, lived this life, their their generosity, but also um, it comes back to a basic question and it's still a question we should ask today is what wouldn't you do for your family? What wouldn't you do for your freedom? And to give people, your friends, your family, your lovers, your parents, what wouldn't you do to give them um, a safe life? Absolutely, absolutely. Now... Kirsty Manning, I th- had thought I had guessed the ending, <laughs> but I was in for a surprise. Well done. Look, great book. And the book is The Jade Lily by Kirsty Manning, published by Alan and Unwin. And I was talking ridiculously with George, <laughs> uh, with David Metzenthen. You're not George, you're David. Um, uh, David Metzenthen about his book, George Parker Goes Global. And I think Alan and Unwin should sponsor us from here on in. Oh, well, <laughs> absolutely. We're doing them proudly. Once again next week, listen Indeed. to um, Published or Not. And thank you to our authors today. Thank you. Thank very you. Much.